teams sit right on the baseline. The big fella from New Zealand. When we cut him off baseline, he started walking in there. Welcome on to the Baseline Podcast. Um, I'm a day late putting a podcast out, but that's all right because I've delayed it to have a major guest on. Um, very privileged today to have Liz Mills of the Kenya National Program. I'm really excited. She's been floating around the world for the last six or eight months and managed to nail her down once she got back to her favorite destination of Sydney. <laughs> Liz, how are you going today? I'm great, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm a fan of the podcast, so and thank you for your patience in lining up your schedule for me. <laughs> no, no problem at all. It's um, there's there's so many people I reach out to internationally who the schedules just don't work and the time difference is a nightmare. But um, with the big year you've had, um, it was cool to yeah get a get a coach on um from somewhere outside of New Zealand that can shed a bit of light on your journey and then what's happening in the game of basketball. So, yeah, very excited. I'm just going to jump right in. Um, for listeners who don't know who you are, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you first got into the game of basketball? Sure. So I grew up with uh, my twin sister, Vic, in Sydney, Australia. Um, my parents were very supportive, so we ended up playing multiple sports when we were growing up, but predominantly netball, but shh, don't tell anybody. Um, we started watching the WNBL, which is the Women's National Basketball League in Australia, when we were about 10. And we kind of taught ourselves how to play watching that league. Um, we started playing at 15 and started coaching at 16. So we started working with like local club teams and that turned into rep teams, uh, boys and girls teams. And I eventually went on to coach uh, our youth league teams, which is under 21 rep teams. And so after finishing uh, sports science and sports management degree, my sister and I went on an around the world trip uh, that finished in Zambia, which is in Southern Africa, where we did volunteer work. We both fell in love with the country and continued to return over the next couple of years. And as a result, since 2011, I've been a head coach and an assistant coach for men's club teams and national teams in Africa. And I'm currently, as you said, the head coach for the Kenyan men's national team. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. So in terms of um, the Kenyan national program, obviously we'll talk on the success you've had there. How did you first get involved with that national program the the growth of african basketball we'll talk on this too is obviously um, massive but you've been around for the time where i feel we've seen some of the biggest growth in the african game in terms of not just the exposure that the players are getting but investment from the nba success at a world level um elite players being part of the men's and women's game coming from africa so how did you first get involved well, I actually had worked in Kenya back in 2015-2016 as the manager for their National University Basketball League. So I was superficially known in the country. Um, and then the great thing about East Africa, so we're talking Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda and Kenya, is they're a very tight group of countries. And in 2019, I coached the Rwandan club team, Patriots BBC, for, as you mentioned, the NBA FIBA Basketball Africa League qualifiers. And that's when I came onto the radar of the Kenyan Federation, more as a coach rather than, say, a manager of a, of a league. 
And so um, I'd also managed to build a reputation. By 2019, I had almost spent 10 years coaching in Africa. Um, I'm big on analytics and pushing out advanced stats for players. And so I'm well known amongst federations, uh, national teams and club teams um, across the continent. So um, the federation in the first round of AfroBasket qualifies back in, I want to say, uh, December 2020, um, Kenya had won a game against Mozambique but had been seriously dominated by Senegal and Angola. Um, and so the federation was looking to change up the coaching staff and as a result of my work with previous teams like, say, the Cameroon national team, Patriots, and my reputation across the continent, they reached out to me um, and spoke to me about joining their coaching staff in January earlier this year. And so it's it was basically, you know, a, the culmination of the work I'd done on the continent for 10 years, having built my reputation and brand so that people were aware of me um, and just kind of being in the right position at the right time, having previously been in Kenya as well. And so the rest is history. That's awesome. I love it. So you're the first woman to lead a men's national team to a major continental tournament when Kenya qualified for AfroBasket. Um, as I was prepping questions for the pot, questions for the pot, I saw the um, the pretty powerful photo as the buzzer blew to end the game. Can you tell me how important like, that moment um, was for yourself personally, but then also obviously um, you know breaking down a massive barrier for female coaches in the game with that achievement. Yes, that photo has definitely um, <laughs> gone viral. <laughs> um, I should I should print it and hang it somewhere. Uh, whoever yeah, took the photo, it's not behind the wall. <laughs> yeah, it should be behind me on my wall. <laughs> um, but it was a historic moment on a number of levels, um, especially because we had beaten eleven-time AfroBasket champions Angola to qualify wow. for the 2021 AfroBasket. It was also the first time in 28 years that Kenya had qualified for the tournament. So I was so excited for the players, the team, the federation and the entire country to finally be back on that continental stage. For me personally, I said back in 2012 that I wanted to be the first woman to coach at um, at AfroBasket. It took me nearly, you know, 10 years of hard work and dedication. And I think you can see that in the photo um, of just that pure um, exhilaration and having finally achieved that goal and having helped Kenya um, break their 28-year their hoodoo. I'd also had a lot of previous experience against Angola, having coached in Southern Africa for nearly six years, and to finally be able to beat them uh, meant a lot to me. Yeah. Um, oh, that's awesome. I, <laughs> yeah. If it had been anybody else, I probably wouldn't have been as excited. But um, I also think... I also knew um, what if we qualified that it was going to be a huge breakthrough for female coaches. Um, as you mentioned, um, this is the first time a woman has ever coached at a FIBA Continental Championship. Um, and I had a lot of uh, players, female players and coaches, reach out to me after the event um, just to congratulate me and tell me how happy they were to see a female coach working with a men's team and showing the world that it could be done. Um, it, up until then, it hadn't really hit me um, how much female coaches in the FIBA global community were really crying out for a visible female role model. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, I've w really wanted to continue to shine a light 
and a way for female coaches and I'm very much holding the door open and ushering them through to join me. Um, I may be the first, but I'm definitely not going to be the last. I love it. Oh, that's, that's really, really inspiring. I, um, as I was researching for the pod, I saw, read an article where it talked about some ob- obstacles or um, yeah, people saying, oh, you can't sit there. That's for the head coach or this sort of stuff. And I, yeah. now I know you a little bit. I could see you're sort of chuckling about it now. But for people that aren't maybe as um, you know, strong as yourself and you've obviously had experience at that level and, you know, you've got confidence in your abilities, um, how when we reflect on the way that um, our organisations are built in sport and the underrepresentation of um, high-level coaches in terms of females, not just in... Uh, front office but just high level sporting positions how can organizations better pro- promote equity in their hiring and then how can we have the the people that deserve to be there you know be it um, more females more people of color um, mm-hmm. people from more diverse backgrounds how can those people put themselves out there more and put themselves um, in a position um, to be like hey look I'm deserving of this you know maybe you mm-hmm. haven't treated me well but I'm not going to let that deter me from trying to push for these elite positions I think and I think you've touched on this at the end of the day it's hiring the best person underlying yes. person for yeah. the role yeah. so it's it's not that there aren't women out there who don't have the same experience and qualifications as these men do um, that's not true at all it's up to organizations and federations to select the best person for the role based on experience qualification and skill set with gender playing no role in the selection process. And I actually also think at the end of the day, a bit controversial, I listened to a great um, TED podcast about this, we actually need to raise the bar higher for male coaches or male administrators, male officials or whatever it is because the bar is very high for women. To be successful as an elite coach, speaking from my own experience, you there is a standard that you have to meet in order to be considered for these coaching roles why isn't the same standard the same for men yeah so we need to perhaps lower the standard for women so that we can get more through and raise the standard for men um i also think it's about organizations and federations engaging and actually encouraging women to take up coaching officiating or administration roles and actually then providing them with development pathways and jobs. It's not enough to be like, okay, let's have a coaching clinic for 20 female coaches, but then not actually have any kind of direction or job opportunities in line with that program. Um, I think you and I can both agree that there's a lot of uh, talking the talk when it comes to female participation, but not a lot of walking the walk. Um, And so... I, I like to think people have all these uh, misconceptions about Africa, that it's backward, it's highly patriarchal. Um, tell me anywhere on the planet which where the, it isn't highly patriarchal. Yeah. So, because yeah. I'll go. That's where I'm going. Um, <laughs> but if, if Kenya can be the first federation to hire a female coach for a men's team, yeah. what is everybody else's ex- is excuse? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, overcoming uh, the 
like you like you mentioned, um, and just for viewers who don't know, um, when I was in Cameroon for Afro Basket qualifiers, I went to put my ha- my whiteboard down on the head coaching seat, and a woman from the Cameroon Federation came up to me and said, "No, no, that's for the head coach." My God! And I said, "Well, I am the head coach," <laughs> and she's like, "No, no," pointing at my assistant. They speak French, so there was a bit of a language barrier as well, but she was speaking English okay. Uh, pointing at him, no, he's the head coach. And I'm like, no, I am the head coach. And so in those situations, um, I might have actually got really angry in the past, yeah. probably when I was a bit younger I would have, but I've now learned to be, um, and people always label women as emotional. So, you know, as soon as we start standing up for ourselves, it's like, yeah. oh, she's being emotional. Um, so I was very, very um like flat and I was like no I'm the head coach and my name's Liz and I've been working with Kenya and and the look of shock on her face but it's I used it as a point an education opportunity and um why would she know that I was I was the head coach when she's never seen a female head coach Mm. so it's kind of um trying to see it from their perspective and educate them in the, sa- in the same process. There are a couple of lost causes, don't get me wrong, where you're just like, he's never, and a lot of them are men, are never going to change their mind regardless. Yeah. Um, but I, I always try and remember in the back of my head, someone's got to break through first. Yes. And if that means I've got to take the, um, excuse my language, the bullshit that comes my way, and if yeah. it makes it easier for the next woman to come through, then I'll tolerate it. And I'll be the person to take it so that it's easier for her as I go through on my journey. Um, yeah. I, that wasn't always my mentality, but um, sometimes you feel a bit like, why do I have to put up with this? And um, yeah. But working, like I can't tell you, the teams I work with and the African basketball community have accepted me like I'm one of their own. Um, and if I don't turn up to a tournament, they're wondering where I am. And so... Um, they've embraced me, uh, encouraged me, and I and I really think that it's a shame that you don't see that with more federations or countries of embracing their female coaches and encouraging them, um, be that men or women's teams, just encouraging them to achieve whatever they set their mind to achieve. Mm. Um, but hopefully that starts to change in the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Um, mm. I think naturally in um, society we want to, you know, bash the person um, who said, you know, you know, that's for the head coach. But as you say, yep. the, the attitude you took towards it is like, hey, what what good is it for us to go and bash them? We actually need to go and change our behaviours. Um, yeah. When I say our, obviously we're talking mainly men here, but True. we need to change our our behaviours and our mindsets and be like. You know, as you said, um, let's raise the bar. Um, and also, I feel seeing some hires, and I've seen this in the states, um, that sometimes to tick a box, we bring someone in for an interview, and yep. this this can be done for both genders. But but yes. we've, we've seen it. We have seen some of that with female coaches recently, and I feel especially yes, in this have. day and age. Yeah, it's it's crazy. We know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who I'm talking about. Um, but this these days, with the way that media is and just being seen to do the right thing, even if you're not doing the right thing, it makes mm-hmm. 
it very difficult organizationally um, because you're not there's no it's not genuine at all there's no mm-hmm. um, you, you're just coming for an interview but you actually won't get the job you know and it, but if someone yeah. knew that then they would never go into the interview do you exactly do you personally have more motivation or or drive to um, yeah how, how you how what's driven you personally to overcome some of these obstacles because obviously it's you talked about this hmm. stuff it's it's difficult to work through this you know you're going in yep. I'm here to just do my job like I don't want this bullshit what's driven yeah. you personally to be able to have that attitude and humility around this kind of stuff well I think it's really um when I set a goal I'm very driven towards achieving that and I really very rarely get sidetracked or derailed I'm not going to let somebody who has a prehistoric mentality of women stop me from achieving whatever I want to do um I, like I previously mentioned, I said I wanted to be the first woman to coach at AfroBasket and it took me nine years to achieve that and it, there was a lot of failures, there was a lot of challenges, there was immense discrimination, especially when I was younger based on my age but also my gender. And, you know, now the goal is I want to be the first woman to coach at the FIBA World Cup. So I think also another aspect is, and you've, hopefully this comes across is I have an insatiable need to prove people wrong. If you tell me that I can't do something, watch me do it twice and I'll take photos doing it just to, (laughs) you know, for evidence. Um, You know, I think that it's a very external motivation, but um, I want to prove that women can be successful in whatever we, we set our mind to. Um, And I think that, that drives me to continue to achieve, to continue to prove people wrong. Um, And I also have a very high standard for myself and that allows me to overcome a number of those obstacles. Mm. Um, You know, for example, I have numerous qualifications. Um, I have a sports science degree. I have a master's in coaching. I've been a strength and conditioning coach. I've got analytics qualifications. So I can spread myself across numerous areas. And in Africa, they can't afford to have an SNC trainer, an analytics person, a video coordinator. So I, um, having diversified, and I'm not just a coach, I can handle a lot of these other things. And that has been my 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 competitive advantage. Yes. So having, having that high standard has... Um, has allowed me to kind of brush off the nonsense and being able to um, promote myself in a way that people can't overlook me. Um, And in saying that, um, all my mentors have been male. So I wouldn't be where I am today without men giving me the opportunities that I've had. So um, as much as we do, and I do agree with you, it is um, systemic throughout sport. Um, I've just been really lucky to have mentors or like look at the chairman of the Kenyan Federation, for example, didn't even think twice. He saw yeah. I could have put my name as Peter Davidson and he looked at the qualifications and was like, this person is the yeah. best person for our team. Yeah. And so 
Um, I, there are great men out there who are promoting women and it's, it's not about us saying all men are uh, the ones holding us back. Um, I think there are pockets of men who, who do want to see us rise and, and reach the, be the best of our potential because um, it's all, it all comes down to diversity. Um, the more diverse your organization is, the, light, the more successful it is, and that's in sport, in business, in life. Um, it's just a no-brainer to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree so much, and I think it's also, um, you know, in media and today we sort of deal in absolutes, and it's like, yeah, this person might be a fuckwit, um, but they're yeah. not all like that, you know. We exactly um, on both sides, we we need to give credit where credit's due, and it's great to see the program that you're a part of was was like, okay, not only is this person invested in themselves, but we feel that they're the best candidate for the job based on those things you spoke on. Um, and that's a mm -hmm. nice little segue to the next uh, question. What pieces of advice do you have for young coaches looking to make uh, their way into the game? The I feel as, we, as I look at coaches in New Zealand, and I've had people on the pod, had a good discussion mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago um, with someone who had similar qualifications to yourself, and there hasn't been a massive amount of investment in New Zealand in developing mm -hmm. our coaches. Um, but okay. when you talk about what you've done, you actually invested in yourself and you were like, well, how can I better myself in this world? Well, so S&C, analytics, yep. all, the, all these mm -hmm. other things. Um, first, do you think investing in yourself is really important? And then um, what pieces of advice do you have for young coaches, male or female, looking to make their way mm -hmm. in the game? Oh, 100% invest in yourself. And I think fundamentally it's all about being brave enough to fail because this is where we learn the most. Um, yeah. It's a super cliche comment, but the, the pathway to success is littered with failure. And I think a lot of um, younger coaches aren't necessarily confident enough to fail. They, they, they're, they're looking for the, the, what, the easier approach maybe sometimes or the comfortable situation. I think they need to be open to all types of opportunities and that opportunity may be lateral instead of vertical. For example, um, myself as a coach, like you mentioned, analytics uh, or, you know, sports nutrition. These, uh, it's often when we're doing something that's completely unrelated that you find um, you have developed skills that you can use in multiple jobs. And I think a lot of the time for coaches, we become very narrow-minded about, hey, I'm just a coach and I'm going to work on coaching and I'm just going to attend these coaching courses without ever really broadening our horizons to the entire holistic process mm. of being in sport. Um, it's never a wasted endeavor as long as you're learning and continuing to de develop. Um, I think for female coaches in particular, it's about being ready to go out and create your own opportunities because let's, let's be real, no one's going to hand us anything. Um, I think in this current environment, we have to create our own opportunities. Um, and that's honestly one of my pillars of success is being able to create opportunities. Um, my first coaching job in, in 2011 in Zambia, I had never coached men. I'd never thought about coaching men because, you know, growing up in Australia as a female coach, your options are coaching juniors, predominantly girls, or coaching women. 
And I ended up approaching a club, men's club team in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, and said, can I run a training session? Um, and I was just lucky to have their manager had worked for the World Bank and had a very global perspective. And he said, sure, why not? And in 2018, I traveled to Tunisia and I approached teams competing in the World Cup qualifiers. And I ended up being the assistant coach for Cameroon, who had former NBA players, EuroLeague players, and some of the top players in Europe in that team. Um, and so if I had waited for someone to say, hey, Liz, uh, can you come and coach us? Um, I think I would have been dead in the water. And as female coaches, I think we need to really be confident and aggressive in going for opportunities. We've got to put ourselves in those situations where we can be hired. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think that, that would be my advice for young coaches. I think yeah. um, uh, hopefully that resonates. I mean, look, not everybody's going to jump on a plane and go to Tunisia, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but within within whatever your, your comfort zone is, yeah. that, that's what I would recommend. Um, think outside the box. Yeah, that's really, really good. So basketball in Africa is going from strength to strength. We touched on a little bit earlier. What insight mm -hmm. can you give around the growth of the game and then the talent um, in, the, in the continent of Africa? In the past decade, since I've been coaching in Africa, the game has drastically improved. Uh, this is a result of better coaching and increased focus on youth development through independent academies as well as the NBA academies and junior NBA. Um, they also have a number of independent NBA and FIBA camps annually throughout the continent. Uh, and this has greatly um, impacted the the skill development of young players in Africa. Unlike around, uh, unlike uh, the rest of the world, a lot of African players start playing basketball at 14, 15 or 16. So in terms of skill development, they're often lagging behind. But these programs have really addressed that Um and we're seeing an, uh, an improvement in youth skill and development uh, that is far superior to what we saw 10 years ago. Uh, there's also been a drastic improvement in the infrastructure in some of these countries. Um, I'm not sure if you saw any games from Afrobasket, but Rwanda, as well as Senegal and Angola, have world-class basketball facilities. Um, Though, uh, unfortunately, federation administration and officiating is still lagging behind. This is something that's very slowly improving across the continent, and hopefully it will kind of uh, gain traction as the rest of the, the game is improving. Um, the, the launch of uh, the NBA and FIBA Basketball Africa League has also raised the exposure of basketball on the continent. Uh, this is showcasing some of the best local talent in Africa with the aim of eventually growing to a level where African players no longer ne need to leave the continent for better opportunities. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a talent drain, as you know. Um, the great thing about players in Africa is that they're hungry to learn, they're coachable and extremely hardworking. And honestly, as a coach, there's nothing you could ask for more in a player. And this is why I think the game is developing so quickly. Um, to any coaches out there, the, the tidal wave of African talent is about to crash and uh, you want to be part of it 100%. Yeah, I love that. Being coachable, man, that's <sighs> un underrated uh, in terms of parents <sighs> and players <laughs> not yep. knowing, like, you know, if I tell you to do this, mm -hmm. just do it. Go and work on it, you know. 
I'm not yep. telling you to go and work on your left hand for no reason. It's literally because um, you can only oh. finish on one side of your body. So that's that's a learning <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah. oh, look, to be honest, the reason I don't coach juniors is um, the attitude that I uh, – the reason I don't coach in Australia and juniors much anymore is the attitude of these kids and the parents. Yeah. Um, and that's why you will never see me coaching in ju- at the junior level ever again. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when and I and I definitely feel that um, you know, when obviously you're in the positions that you're in and you're investing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours, you choose the job that you feel best suits um, your time oh, investment totally. and um, yeah, parents and sport. That's a whole other podcast. That's a whole podcast. <laughs> it is. Um, so from the outside, and I think you're you're well qualified to speak on this because obviously you're from Australia and you, but you're, you're, um, that was where you obviously cut your teeth and now you're coaching in a different sector. How do you feel the women's game is progressing in Australia and New Zealand? I think, I mean, look, it's getting better and better. I think all across the world, women's basketball is continuing to improve. Um, the WNBL is one of the premier leagues in, in the world for women's basketball. Um, so much talent has come through that program. I mean, Lauren Jackson will go down as one of the greatest basketball players, not female basketball player, basketball player of yes. all time. Um, and so I think both countries do a great job of, uh, at the junior level, developing that talent. Um, and I think we should see that on display next year at the 2022 Female Women's World Cup, uh, which is going to be held in Australia, which is really exciting. Um, I think the only really disappointing thing that I've seen in, um, in Australia in the last couple of years, especially in the WNBL, is the lack of female head coaches in the league. Um, I think the reason why I became a coach was seeing coaches like Carrie Graff, Jan Sterling, Karen Dalton, uh, coaching in the WNBL. Um, to see these strong, powerful women um, own their jobs um, and just be completely, completely dominant in their role, that planted a seed which I didn't know at the time um, and that inspired me to be a coach. Now I look at the WNBL and there's two. In the 40th year of the season, there's two female head coaches. Yeah. And I think, look at all those young girls who are playing or who want to be coaches. What does this tell them? Yeah. And so I think Basketball Australia, I know they have a number of programs. There's a number of state programs where they're trying to encourage more female participation. And I think with the, the Women's World Cup, um, it will shine more of a light um, on, the, on women's basketball. So hopefully we get to a point where we can promote our women the way we are promoting our men. Um, and for the Opals in particular, for example, who have had decades of success and are currently what we would call rebuilding, still successful but not as successful as they have been, the Boomers win one medal and they're the best things that Australian basketball has ever produced. Um, what about the 20 years where the Opals were su- succeeding? Yeah. Um, and so that's just a prime example. Of, I know I went on a, off on a tangent then, no, but uh, that's right. a prime example of, yeah. um, you know, 
the inequality within our sport. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's a, that's a really good observation, and the I think that as and it was around the points you alluded to earlier, um, it's you know we're creating a really good example to or we need to um, try and create a really good example so that the next bunch coming through, you know, mm-hmm. not only have something to aim for, but um, these are the people that we want to be taking our sessions. You know, um, yep. it's if you're doing a coach's session or you're doing coaches training then uh if there's a w a, a WNBL coach that's a woman it's you know it's going to be better for your business to you're probably going to get more people signing up you know this sort of stuff should yeah. be should be no brainers but it shows that we definitely do have work to do in our administration in both new zealand and australia um and mm-hmm. it obviously takes people like yourself who can speak on it not just uh, pay lip service to it, but you're like, hey, mm-hmm. I've been here. I'm actually qualified to speak on this shit, and mm-hmm. um, you can choose to take my advice or not. But yeah. um, this is where we need to be going with the game if we want to grow on a global scale. And I think there's this misconception that um, basketball players will, m- men's basketball players will be a bit hesitant about a woman. And I found in my experience in Africa, which will be more extreme than what you would get in the West yeah. is that they're a bit nervous that first training session. They, they don't know what to expect because they've never had a female coach. But once they realize that you will swear at them, you will tell them what to do, you will get angry, you will cheer for them, you'll be their confident, whatever they need you to be, once they realize that, they don't care if you're a man or a woman or whatever as long and at the end of the day it's actually and i think women are better at this as long as you're able to build a better relationship with them as a person not as a basketball player but as a person and that you can show that you care about them because women have a higher emotional intelligence and this is shown in research they know that you can coach and they don't care about your gender and so if we can get over that mentality men male players don't care what their coach is as long as they know that they can coach and that they care and that that you're going to help them win. And it's really just the administrators and the federations that seem to have this idea that, um, oh, men won't want to be coached by women. How do you know that? Because you've never been in that situation. So I think we've got um, a female assistant coach at the Sydney Kings this year, Fleur uh, McIntyre, I think is her last name. Uh, but just imagine what it would do if we had a head coach. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, I mean, in New Zealand, for example, what's the what's the situation like in terms um, of female coaching? I'm just... I'm turning the podcast back the, on you. <laughs> I'm just working through the professional, um, the professional teams in terms of the 10 New Zealand NBL teams. Um, yeah. I don't think there are any women on staff. Now, if I've missed one, someone's going to shoot me and I'm and I'm fine okay. with that <laughs> um, we would but, like to know so please yeah, reach yeah, out yeah 100% and, and I know but I do know that teams like um, the, the Wellington Saints for example is a team that won the title the last year um, they had mm-hmm. one on staff that I that I know who was um, there as like an assistant coach um, so yeah. but it's not there's not enough and, but we're not doing enough to invest in our coaches full stop and and BBNZ's going through a bit of a rebuild at the moment. It's probably a good mm-hmm. time to be like, 
shit, we're actually we're hiring someone to drive women's basketball. Um, how do mm-hmm. we integrate that better with our with our NBL um, teams? Yep. The Breakers do have um, an assistant coach, um, Chanel. Like I mm-hmm. can't remember her last name. Um, apologies, okay. Chanel, if you're listening. But it's as you say, it, it's about investing at that level um, and mm-hmm. just trying to, to to push on with that. And I, what you said is interesting about um, the. I don't know if, what the what the right word for it is. Um, how people think that that um, professional players wouldn't want to be coached by a woman, and I'd actually never heard that before until the big bust up around what happened with um, Chauncey Billups and the Blazers. And it's interesting. Yes. I know I shouldn't go in and read the comments on Facebook on Twitter, but I, I can't help myself. <laughs> uh huh. But the the ideas around the reasons that mm-hmm. um, a team shouldn't have. A, um, a female coach. I, I find them interesting. A lot of them is fucking stupid, but but I. But it's just. What do you the, do when the, they when they're in the locker room and they're getting changed? <laughs> like oh, stupid just being question adult. like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't come into the locker room until I'm told I can come in. Problem solved. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 100%. So, I just don't go I, walking into male toilets randomly. <laughs> exactly. Why would I do that? Yeah, so. but the. To, but yeah, the, the the thought process around it is um, is pretty strange, and like mm. even just conversations like this are, um, go a long way towards um, maybe someone listens and says, "Oh shit, maybe the views I had they weren't right," or um, maybe I can't yeah. change someone's mind, but we can just have a dialogue on it. Just have dialogue, have decent exactly. conversation with someone on it, and um, mm-hmm. maybe it won't change their mind, but we're talking about it and trying to bring more light on something which is positive for the game. And look, I mean, you can always talk to the athletes that I've worked with. Um, I remember at AfroBasket I spoke to Gorgi Dieng, who had been with San Antonio, and I said, what was it like working with Becky Hammond? And he had great things to say about her. Um, And so if people actually took the time to talk to these teams about what it was like Mm. and realised that, (gasps) the world didn't end, um, they'd, they'd understand that um, the professional athletes in particular, as long as you know what you're talking about, they don't care. Yeah. That's, that's actually the bottom line. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And if you talk on the Spurs, for example, um, mm-hmm. you know, an organisation that's probably, you know, been at the top in terms of basketball and any organisation in the world, um, you mm-hmm. know, they don't, they don't put up with any shit, you know, they're bringing in people that are, High caliber quality. people, um, quality mm-hmm. coaches, um, but very, very disciplined. And Becky was there based on merit. You know, it wasn't yes. putting you in here. And so people just need to reflect on um, things like this and realize. And that's the thing people don't actually know, for example, what NBA players think on these type of subjects. Where yep. there'll be conjecture around it, but until you actually speak mm-hmm. to someone and say, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, she's done this for my game or, um, you know, help me in this part. It's, we don't yep, know, so it's exactly. very hard to speak on. I mean, um, the fact that she, she got overlooked for that Portland job is is ridiculous. But in yeah. saying that, the under-representation of African-American coaches is also another issue. Um, yes. And so, you know, that I mean, that debate was very hot, but, I, I like to look at it as who's the more experienced, actual experienced coach. 
Um, And for me, that's what it came down to. And the fact that she wasn't hired and then slandered by the organization after was, uh, let's just say I haven't watched a Portland game all year. Not that I ever really would, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. So it's it's difficult. Um, And I, and I feel it's difficult also for these players that um, are in the organization because it's like, um, you hear about these catchphrases about culture and all this sort of stuff, but mm-hmm. what does that mean for, I don't know, um, maybe it's the head of media or communications or whatever it is that's um, a woman. It's like, what are we, what are we saying to them um, yep. if we're not hiring the best person? Um, it becomes mm-hmm. very difficult to have that that trust within the organisation. So I think I think. Even if it was a shit situation, when you looked at what happened with the Blazers, there was definitely conversations being had around the NBA around this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And I don't know. Yep. If, has there ever been that type of discourse around the NBA? Oh, maybe. Probably not. Uh, yeah, like behind closed doors. I, yeah. I, I really wouldn't know. Um, it's definitely not something they've let out in the open to the you know the plebs like us. <laughs> um, so I wish they would. I mean, but like, you know, heading heading back to New Zealand, I think, you know, now that they're, like you said, in a rebuilding stage, this yeah. is the perfect time yes. um, to, to set a new standard. Yeah. And look, there, there might not be um, enough qualified women right now, to, which I highly doubt, uh, who to be part of that um, process of, um, being the first woman to do this or, you know, I actually think, and you've mentioned it, it all actually starts with administration and yes. how many women, how many female voices do we have in administration? And that's yeah. where it starts because if we don't have diversity at that level, how do we expect diversity at any other level? Yeah, agreed. And, and, that, and that goes for, yeah, when you have, uh, I've spoken on this lots on this pod, when you have mm-hmm. diversity at governance level, then you're yes. actually going to end up having um, it, it's more representative of our sport and when I look at New Zealand um, the sport of basketball is very diverse in New Zealand so your yes. board needs to be made up of the same diversity so you can continue mm-hmm. to, to know what's best for the game um, so mm-hmm. yeah fingers crossed um, yeah the next I, year or I do two have to say, tell. I do have to say that actually uh, Kenya Moran's player Tyler Ongwe played in New Zealand Okay. And um, so he's he always says what a great time he did have in New Zealand playing there. So shout out to his team. I think <laughs> the Mountaineers. Oh, there we go, if Mountaineers. I, I, yep. Yeah. So, um, uh, but I, I'm convincing him uh, he should come and play in Australia. Okay, that's good. Yeah, he's he's leveling up. <laughs> yeah. Um, next question: What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Versus now, you're an analytics person, so that's good because we can yep. we can be friends now. Um, what are your thoughts on the mid-range um, analytics discussion? Do you have a preference, or do you just want your team to get the best shot? I'm I'm pretty realistic when it comes to this, and yeah. anybody who's watched any African basketball will real realize very quickly that um, any shot from any position going in is a good thing. So um, we're about getting the best shot. Uh, The effective field goal percentage for most African teams is pretty low. um, And the three-point percentage is low 30s, high 20s. 
Okay. So, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the players feel more comfortable um, taking one dribble and catching the ball in the mid or catching the ball in the mid range and shooting it. Yeah. Um, so for me, I'm, I am, I use the analytics to uh, see the overall picture, but I'm not yeah. driven by it. I don't yeah. live and die by the numbers. Um, and uh, but don't get me wrong. I am influenced by it. Um, I am trying to develop better three-point shooters for Kenya in because that's going to be our competitive advantage. If we can shoot the three at 35% and other teams are shooting it at 21, um, that's going to give us an advantage moving in, um, uh, moving into games. Yeah. But um, bottom line, I'm all about the best shot. And what it, whatever that, sh- that person is comfortable shooting, um, yeah. And at a national team level, we don't really have that time to yes. change shots or yeah. um, if a play ends up with a corner three but I don't have a, a shooter who can shoot in the corner, I'm just putting putting that into a mid-range corner, corner short corner shot, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm not going to live and die by analytics. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. There's some good nuance there though that, um, when you have less time to spend with these guys, um, mm-hmm. then you're not going to be ripping them at training for taking a, a 19 footer because this could be someone that shoots it at 44%. So your analytics would actually work out significantly mm-hmm. better than if they were, a, you know, obviously the equivalent three point shooter. So that's, that's really, really good to know when you reflect mm-hmm. on the, um, the international program versus professional teams that maybe have oh, yeah. two month preseason, um, oh, one yeah. month training camp it's a completely mm-hmm. different um yeah obviously completely different kettle of fish so that's a good oh, yeah. breakdown there exactly like i might have two weeks with my guys so i'm not going to be like everyone we have to shoot threes <laughs> so you know yeah, yeah i have and uh, i mean I, I potentially will be coaching um a team a club team in an upcoming season and having just coaching tournaments um for the last couple of years i'm actually a bit like oh what am i going to do for nine months with a team that seems like an an awfully long time to work with someone so that's probably when i'd really deep dive into the analytics and try and make some some changes regarding what the analytics tells me yeah that's exciting this question is from my co-host linda moore big fan of yours Mm -hmm. um if you give your younger self a piece of advice what would it be Mm mm-hmm when I was younger, I was a bit of a know-it-all. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to admit it. Um, you know, fresh out of uni, I was like, sports science degree. I've got my coach. I've coached for, you know, five years and I'm Australian. So I'm going to come to Africa and I'm just going to pour out my knowledge, you know. Um, this is when I was like 24. And, and so... Um, I think it was great to have the confidence because without that, I wouldn't have, you know, been able to approach the teams I did. Um, and I got a little bit in Zambia where I initially started coaching. I got a little comfortable and uh, big fish, small, small pond, basically. Mm. So my advice would be to my younger self, be open to learning from everyone and anybody. And learning yeah. necessarily isn't always positive. You might look at someone and go, that's not how I would do it, you know, or learn from their mistakes. Um, and so that's what, and I would also be, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And this is something that I think, uh, not just my younger self, but a lot of coaches, um, you only 
grow when you're in uncomfortable situations. And I think uh, if I had, I stayed in Zambia for seven years, that was probably two or three years too long. And it was because I was comfortable and I was, I was king, basically. Uh, or I should say queen. Um, no one was really going to be challenging me there. I was, you know, king of the castle. And so um, for a lot of coaches that might be, for example, in Sydney, you know, I could have just stayed at North's, my club team, and just yeah. continued to coach there for the rest of my life or coach in Sydney, coach state, whatever. Wouldn't yeah. be coaching the boomers because you know that's not going to be a woman. Um, so at the end of the day, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Think outside your comfort zone. You are only going to learn in those situations. So if that's like you've coached in Wellington your whole life, go coach in Christchurch, go coach in Australia, go coach in Asia, um, and look at those different opportunities. Um, so those two things is what I would probably say to myself. Shut up and listen. And um, when you're comfortable, that's that means it's time for a change. Yeah, that's good. That's really, really good advice. Last one before we close it out. What's the last great meal that you had? Okay. Well, I'm going to promote the um, the not-for-profit organization that I'm an ambassador for. Um, that's cool. It's called, yeah, it's called So They Can. It's um, an organization that's based in New Zealand and Australia that works with schools in Kenya and Tanz Tanzania by empowering uh, children who live in poverty through education. So they're attached to about 48 schools in the two countries and um, are looking to provide better education for uh, children who predominantly have been internally displaced through um, political war or um, uh, humanitarian situa situations. And so on Saturday night, we ended up having a global virtual fundraising dinner and cool. I'm very happy to say that Chef Liz was in the house and I <laughs> made um, tandoori roasted chicken with cucumber and coriander summer salad. And for dessert, we had balsamic poached berries with frozen yogurt. So wow. that's, that's the meal that I'm going to be promoting. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. And it's also cool to see you using your platform to help some good causes. There's no doubt that um, as people in sport who are able to you know, travel, um, you know, do their chosen profession, um, and then obviously you come back to Australia and promote things like this, these are the things when we have a platform that we need to continue to help with because, um, like mm -hmm. for yourself, um, obviously you um, deeply care for not just sport in Africa, but the, the, the people, mm -hmm. the people from Africa. So it's like you know, I'm going to put my my money where my mouth is and and promote 100%. these so that's that's really cool mm. to hear and look i'm one of those people uh coaches who don't live and breathe basketball um where we're not curing cancer we're not saving the world we're not solving world peace uh it's only basketball at the end of the day um yeah. so i take a pretty holistic approach to coaching in basketball um these kind of you know charities or organizations that are actually on the ground um, providing education for kids who otherwise wouldn't get it or, you know, um, Doctors Without Borders, all these kind of organisations that are out there actually changing lives, saving lives. Um, I'd much rather promote them um, than anything to do with basketball, if I'm honest. Yeah, 
yeah no there's, there's nothing wrong with that you um i feel like you do you've done enough promoting of basketball with with the stuff that you've done um True. and you know like you're you're a ex- good example of that and i think also there's some um some real gems in that last comment around i think it's important for coaches to get balance i've seen mm-hmm. some recent stuff on twitter about how um you know the mbpa is promoting the national basketball players association for the nba is promoting how players need to have better balance and how we need to take care of them yet the head mm-hmm. coaches are just basically working until and i, I shouldn't say death but that, that yeah. it will be it won't be long before something you know bad happens to someone on yep. the job so it's mm-hmm. important, I feel, to have some balance, and um, that I know I've sometimes maybe you need need to do twelve or fourteen or sixteen hours or whatever it is, but mm-hmm. have something else, another outlet um, in your life yeah. to better give you perspective, no. and then you come back and with yeah. a fresher mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I yeah. and I think having coached in Africa and uh, seeing some of the things I have, um, it's very difficult sometimes to go oh winning this basketball game is the most important thing in the world <laughs> you know um perspective is huge um and I've, I've just got too many interests outside of basketball like if someone said to me all you could do for the rest of your life is coach i'd be very sad yeah. um i think uh, and having the that outside interest has allowed me to connect so much better with the players I've worked with, or the like, the, not just players, but team managers, federations, um, and having that perspective uh, enriches everybody's everybody's yeah. relationship. Um, and I, I actually wish more coaches had that perspective. Yeah, well, that's so good. We're going to close this pod out now. Thank you so much for um, taking the time, Liz, and also having a really, really real and um, constructive conversation around where we're at with, um, yeah, coaching and, and also women's coaching and basketball and, and just a general chat overall. Um, appreciate your realness and, and where you come from and just wish you all the best and, um, yeah, hopefully get to catch up again soon. Oh, Stevie, thanks so much. It's been very and very enjoyable chat. Um, so thank you for t- inviting me on the show and I can't wait for my next invite. <laughs> awesome. Thank you.